So this week is actually the end of another major section in the, the Gospel of Mark. We have uh, gone with uh, Jesus uh, all the way through this, this great uh, adventure across the Sea of Galilee where he was uh, met with a giant storm, that he calmed that storm with his words, and then he, he meets this demoniac on the, on the shore of this Gentile land, and he exorcises this mighty uh, demonic force from this man and, and, and completely heals him. And then he comes back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and he's met by a, a man named Jairus whose daughter is about to die, and he's also met by a woman who is basically the walking dead with a, with a, a, a hemorrhaging situation that she could not cure for 12 years. And he miraculously cures the woman, and then the, the young child dies, and yet he says, uh, do not fear, only believe, because Jesus by the touch of his hand and the words arise, says to this little girl, get up, and she gets up. And so we have been walking with the disciples through miracle after miracle being done by Jesus. And now today he comes back to his hometown. He comes back to the place where he grew up. The town we know is Nazareth, and we see that the one who has the power to command the wind and the waves, the one who has the power to overcome evil and expel it, the one who has the power to raise the dead back to life, is rejected by his own hometown. He is rejected by the people who supposedly know him the most, have known him the longest. Why? Why? Well, the gist of it is they could not accept that Jesus, who for most of their knowledge was simply their carpenter, could possibly be the Messiah. I mean, think of the cognitive dissonance <laughs> that, that, that that creates. You mean you're telling me the person that leveled my table? <laughs> Is, is the Messiah, right? That's a, that's a pretty big discovery. And so what we have in the story of Nazareth is we have a story of a group of people who have become so familiar with, with Jesus, so comfortable with Jesus, so uh, um, used to who Jesus is, that when he becomes what he was called to be, the Messiah, they, they cannot accept him. And so we have here kind of a story that epitomizes that, uh, that famous phrase, familiarity breeds contempt, right? And I wonder if now that we have been in the church age for two millennia, if perhaps we are in that same place as the people of Nazareth, where our familiarity with Jesus, in a sense, has created a contempt, has created a yawn when it comes to, to, to Jesus, to worshiping him, to being in his presence. Anecdotally, I, I know that many of us have seen people say, I don't go to church anymore because I find it, that I can go meet Jesus when I'm, I'm fishing 
or I like to, to, to go and, and meet God in nature, or I, I experience God when I look at the stars, and that's the way that, that I prefer to worship. And the, the idea of, of coming into a stuffy room and gathering at a certain time and hearing a long-winded guy and, and doing songs and all this stuff, it's just so old, it's so passe, it, it doesn't move me, it's, it's too familiar, and, and, and I, I just don't get anything out of it. And so the familiarity of our worship of Jesus and really our familiarity of the story of Jesus has, has sort of conspired against a lot of people to make being at worship, dwelling upon Jesus, something that is kind of missable. And so the question I really have as I've been wrestling with this passage is how do we keep our worship for Jesus when we have become so familiar with him? Do you, do you struggle with worshiping Jesus and yet we know Jesus, uh, we're so familiar with Jesus, Jesus is uh, uh, the, the friend and the, the person that we can honestly almost always take for granted because he is such a reliable person, always there for us. So how do we keep our worship for Jesus when we have become so familiar with him? And I really think just as this passage reveals that problem, it in a, in a surprising way shows us the way to refresh ourselves in the worship of Jesus, because it is in the familiarity that Jesus made himself to us. It is one of the most amazing parts of the gospel. And so I, at the end of this service, hope that what you have taken as familiar, recognize as incredibly profound, and something that draws you to marvel afresh at Jesus. You see, Jesus was a carpenter, right? Is, is that not a, 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 an astounding thing to recognize that Jesus was a carpenter? And so it tells us in this passage, in such ordinary terms, that Jesus is not just spirit, but Jesus is also flesh. If we want to meet God, we need to spend time not stargazing, but with Jesus in his lowliness. And Jesus' lowliness is that he became like one of us. He dwelt among us. He was one of us, one of the most ordinary of us, a carpenter. When we recognize that Jesus took on lowliness, we don't respond with familiarity but we recognize that his ordinariness, his commonness that he showed himself in is actually part of the good news. And once we see this, I think there will be no way that we can become overly familiar with Jesus, but we will marvel at him. So I want us to go through this passage and see three revelations that come through appreciating Jesus's lowliness, Jesus's commonness, Jesus's ordinary Jonas, if you want to say it that way. The first revelation that we get from Jesus's lowliness is that Jesus' lowliness reveals God to us. Jesus' lowliness reveals 
God to us. So Jesus comes to his hometown, which we know is Nazareth, and he goes into the synagogue, and he is given the opportunity to open the scriptures and to say a few words, and uh, all of his townsfolk are there, and they're listening, and they're, they're, they're dealing with this cognitive dissonance. And, the, and you see that cognitive dissonance showing up in these, these lists of questions. You know, they ask, you know, where did he get this teaching how does he have this wisdom? How are these mighty works done by his, his hands? And so on one side, their mind is saying, uh, he, he is exalted, right? He's got, he's got uh, uh, godly knowledge, godly wisdom, godly power. But then at the same time, they're scratching their heads and they're saying, but wait, isn't he the, the carpenter? Isn't he the son of, of Mary? <laughs> this this very common uh, woman in the community, uh, aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Judas, and aren't those four women over there his sisters? I mean, how 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 can can he be exalted when we also know how common he was, right? And so we have here this this kind of two sides of Jesus coming into the the frame of the people of Nazareth. His teaching and his wisdom and his mighty works, they point to Jesus' likeness to God, right? They're pointing to Jesus as being more than just a man. They are revealing the divinity of Jesus. But then at the same time, we're all, they're also confronted with their, their deep knowledge of his ordinariness. I mean, he, he grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth is, is, a, is a speck, a small town in the middle of, of, of the Galilean region. It, it had maybe 20 or 50 people that lived in this town. It wasn't a king's town. It wasn't a royal town. It wasn't a rich family town. It wasn't an important family town. It was Boise. Right? I mean, it, nobody. Anybody, anybody here come from Boise? I sure hope not. But I don't know anybody from Boise. But I mean, could you? I mean, so 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 Nazareth. Nazareth was such an obscure, meaningless place that when the first disciples come to Nathaniel in John chapter one and say, "We think we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth," and the guy kind of laughs. He says, "Nazareth." Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, that's like saying Boise. Could anything good come from Boise? Please tell me, nobody's from Boise. Are you from Boise? Well, it may be beautiful. Nazareth is beautiful, but come on. <laughs> All right. How about Des Moines? Uh, <laughs> There's a, lot, there's a lot of small, uh, meaningless places out there. I can offend everybody. The, the gist of it is you're, you're, all, you know, you're all low. Come on. I mean, let's get used to it. Uh, we could even say Kansas City. But the point is, the point is Nazareth was a nothing town. And this is where Jesus hails from. And he works as a, as a carpenter. I mean, he's just a, a man who works with his hands. That's how they knew him, as the, as the village carpenter. Can, can you get your mind around this? The one who fashioned the stars also blistered his hands in the carpenter's shop. How do you put those two together, right? 
And so what we have here is a Jesus who is very ordinary. He's a, he's a Jesus who sleeps. He's a Jesus who, who grows tired. He's a Jesus who needs to eat. He's the son of Mary. And so we have at the same time his likeness to us, his humanity. And his humanity is so thorough, so complete, that the people of Nazareth never even saw that he could be the Messiah. He was that like us, that that the people of Nazareth only saw a carpenter. So we have his likeness to God and we have his likeness to us. His divinity and his humanity are kind of being wrestled with in these questions. And these two truths only really synthesize, only really come together in a meaningful sense when we recognize that in Jesus is God incarnated. Jesus is the incarnation of God. Another way of describing the incarnation is to say Jesus is the God-man. He is God and he is also man. And so what does it mean? It means that the the people of of Nazareth are are wrestling in in this discussion with the the evidence that Jesus is truly man and the evidence is truly God. And they cannot put the two together. But for us, we have to recognize that Jesus' revelation is that he is truly man and he is truly God. He is the God-man. And why the incarnation? Why is it so important that we talk about the incarnation, a word that is, that is big and theological and, and maybe something not familiar. Why the incarnation? Why is it so important for us to grasp that Jesus of Nazareth was fully man and fully God? Because it is only because Jesus of Nazareth has divinity and humanity that he can truly reveal God. You see, Jesus is a man, but men are created in the image of God. And in Jesus, for the first time ever, the image of God on man shined and radiated in its perfection. Right? God was able to become man because he created man to bear his image. So Jesus, when when he becomes man, is still able to bear the image of God because that was what man was created to be. So he is able to be God in the flesh. He is able to be humanity and divinity in Jesus. And the reason this is so important is Jesus' purpose in coming, God's purpose in sending his son, is so that through Jesus, his divinity can perfectly represent God to us. And His humanity can perfectly represent us to God. Only Jesus can perfectly reveal who God is to us. And only Jesus can perfectly represent us to God. As Paul Paul tells us in uh, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, for there is one God, And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You see, it is because Jesus is able to perfectly represent God and perfectly represent man that he is the one and only person that can fulfill the role of being a mediator between God 
and man. It is because of this truth that we say there is only one way, because there is only one person who can do what is required to bring us to God. Only Jesus can represent God to us, and only Jesus can represent man to God as is needed for our salvation. So through Jesus, because Jesus became lowly, because Jesus made himself flesh and became familiar amongst us, only because he did that can we know God and have a relationship with him. Through Jesus, we can know God and have a relationship with us. It is because Jesus has made himself familiar that we can know God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And that truth should always make us tremble, that we are able to know God because Jesus came in the flesh to make him known. I love Hebrews chapter 1, the way it starts out. It says, In these days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus came into this world, became a man, but that man, as ordinary as he may have appeared to the people in Nazareth, bore the exact imprint of God's character or his nature and had upon him the radiance of the glory of God. As Paul says in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. You see, We have become familiar with Jesus, but that is because Jesus has made him, has made God known in such an accessible way. And so, for some people, believing in God, trusting in God, knowing God is is a is a is an activity that just seems impossible. Some of you are here you have doubts about the existence of God or about who God is. But the the good news that we have of Jesus and his lowliness is if you have doubts about who God is, study Jesus. If you have doubts about who God is, study Jesus. When I was uh, in college, I had pretty much come to the belief that being a Christian uh, being a, a believer in God, being part of the faith was, was, was stupid. I, I had become uh, familiar with all things church, but I had not become a believer in Jesus. And I thought that, that this was a crutch, as people like to say. This was something that, that people of uh, subpar intelligence or subpar means they, they used to, to bolster their life. And I didn't need any of that. But I I realized as I was really getting ready to walk away that I hadn't actually spent much time knowing the Jesus of the Bible. And so 
Clearly, it was the Holy Spirit, but I thought it was my own smarts at the time. I decided that what I needed to do to, to make a smart decision about all of this was to, to read the Gospels. And so by reading the Gospels, I spent day after day just meeting Jesus, seeing how Jesus interacted, seeing Jesus' wisdom, seeing Jesus' miracles, seeing Jesus' compassion, seeing Jesus' righteousness, seeing Jesus' holiness on every single page, and seeing Jesus as somebody who is both truly man, but, but also a, a window into a person that is so much more uh, impressive than I could possibly imagine. I, I recognize in Jesus was the God-man. And I, I saw in the pages of Scripture studying Jesus that there is a God who exists and there is a God that I wanted to know. And so if you have doubts about God, just study Jesus. Some of you here are angry or, or adrift spiritually. Some of you are, are, are honestly thinking, I think it, it would be better just to spend Sunday mornings fishing, Right? My exhortation to you, spend time with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Jesus as the God-man is the one who will reveal to you what you need as you seek to know God. So Jesus' lowliness, first of all, reveals God to us. Second, Jesus' lowliness reveals our heart toward him. Our heart toward him is also revealed because of Jesus' lowliness lowliness. So the people of Nazareth had been used to Jesus before his baptism, right? And they, they just saw Jesus uh, growing up. They saw Jesus uh, at, at the local synagogue. They saw Jesus at the rabbi school. They saw Jesus fishing. They saw Jesus doing carpentry. He became one of us so completely that this town saw nothing special about him. I think that's incredible. He became such a, 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 a Nazarene that they didn't see anything else about him. And then Jesus leaves Nazareth, and he, he's baptized, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he begins his public ministry. And then all of the stuff that we've read in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 have happened. But Nazareth has just kind of been in the background. He's not been back there. Now Jesus comes back. And these people are coming with a whole new side of Jesus. A side of Jesus where he is claiming authority in his teaching, where he is claiming power in his life, where he is claiming wisdom from God. And so the question that is on the minds of all of these people is how can Mary's boy be the Lord? Right? How can he be the Lord? You see, the dilemma that the, the Nazarene people put in front of us is this. Were they going to receive Jesus as he was revealing himself? Or were they going to judge him by their preformed opinions? And that dilemma is true of every age. Are we going to receive Jesus as he was revealing himself, or are we going to judge him by our own preformed opinions? 
They chose their preformed opinions. They chose that they were going to say Jesus is this and nothing more. And so what do they do? They took offense. No carpenter's boy, no handyman is going to come and tell me anything about God, right? That, that's, that, that, that person is, is, uh, is being pretentious, <laughs> and I'm, I don't have any interest in Jesus. So they emphasize, as they go through these lists of questions, his smallness. And they basically say, I'm not going to be listening to any carpenter. Calling Jesus carpenter was a way for these people to keep Jesus small. Right? They, again, are an example of wanting a safe Jesus, not a savior Jesus. And so we have the same spirit in Nazareth that we saw in the, in the uh, area of Gerasa a couple of weeks ago. You, you, you could say of the people of Nazareth, they are happy to celebrate Jesus' birthday, but they don't want him to do anything in their life. You see, you, you see the, the first Christmases were celebrated in Nazareth. Well, it's Jesus' birthday. Let's go, let's go have a birthday party. But now that Jesus is saying, I have authority, I have words that you need to hear, respond to, repent and believe. Well, they want the Christmas, right? But they don't want the Lord the rest of the year. And so we see in, in Nazareth the very kind of first examples of nominal believers. They keep Jesus small because they keep him only a carpenter. And I guess the, the application question that we need to face ourselves is, how do we keep Jesus small? How do we keep Jesus small? How does our familiarity with Jesus keep him small? Well, I'll give you three suggestions. These are not an exhaustive list, but we can see them in the passage. The first way that we can keep Jesus small is by minimizing our awe of Jesus. By minimizing our awe. You see, the Nazarenes started astonished. They were amazed at the beginning when they were in the synagogue hearing Jesus' teaching. But they gradually, question by question, talked themselves out of their astonishment. And they ended in offense. Friends, we can do that ourselves so easily. We can come to church. We can feel filled up. We can feel energized. We can feel excited. And the moment we leave and we have a near close call with the car, or we have our first fight uh, with the kids in the back seat, or we have something, uh, something show up in the mail that's bad news, all of a sudden, all of this uh, time that we spent with Jesus seems so irrelevant. We lose our wonder. We lose our worship so quickly. And, it, and, and, and so we need to ask ourselves, how are we nurturing our worship? How are we remaining astonished at who Jesus really is. There's a practical way that, that God has given us to, to do that, and that is to spend time with him. To make sure that, that, the, that the times that you're spending with Jesus are far more than the times that we are together. Renew EPC is not providing you enough 
to, to be a full-fledged disciple of Jesus. We are fueling you, expecting you to take the fueling into the rest of your week and continue to draw close to Jesus. That has to happen. Our church, no church, can give you all of the vitamins that you need to, to, to thrive in your relationship with Jesus. That has to be time that you commit. So do we minimize our awe? Do we, do we not dwell upon Jesus? Do we not give our time to reflect on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Are we minimizing our awe? Second, uh, we can make Jesus small by minimizing his authority. By minimizing his authority. And we all do this. But let me put it into a question. Does his lordship cover every area of your life? Does his lordship cover every area of your life? Can Jesus speak his authoritative word to your bedroom? Can he speak his authoritative word to your wallet? Can he speak his authoritative word to your career or to your pleasure or to any one of these things? You know, I, uh, I've stayed over the years in a handful of VRBOs, you know, vacation rentals by owner, and they're always fun. They're better than a hotel room. You can, like, get this beautiful house in Breckenridge and you got all this space you get to live in someone's house, uh, you know, for like a week. And you just get to, to enjoy and imagine that, you, that this is your house, right? But if you do as I do on like the first 10 minutes that you're there, you go through the whole house and, and you, you try to see everything. And inevitably, you come to doors that are locked, right? You come to this closet and it's locked and you, you can't get in that closet, and, and by the time you've gone through the whole house, there's five or six different spaces that you don't have access to because the owners have locked those from you. I think there's a great metaphor there for how do we treat Jesus. You see, Jesus, if we have met him, is not the renter of our home. He has come, become the owner of our home. And so when Jesus comes into your life, are there any doors locked to him? Are you treating him as a renter when he comes up to that door that holds the closet of the people you won't forgive? Do you have a locked door called my resentments? Do you have a locked door called my thought life? You have a locked door called my excuses for not repenting. <laughs> Maybe you have a locked door with your um, unconfessed sin or your unrepented uh, life or your browser history. Ha is Jesus the renter of your home or is he the owner of your home? We keep Jesus small when we refuse to allow his lordship to truly speak to every part of our life. And the third is by minimizing our need for Jesus. By minimizing our need for Jesus. Why do we need Jesus? 
The biggest reason we need Jesus is because we're sinners. The biggest reason we need Jesus is because our sin separates us from God. Our sin puts us under judgment. But let me ask you, do you reflect upon your sin? Do you see your sinfulness as truly sinful? Do you think about how grievous sin is to a holy God? Do you see Jesus' cross as necessary for you? You see, we minimize Jesus when we stop thinking about ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. And this world is full of all kinds of don't think about that self-esteem spins and pitches that want to keep you thinking, I'm a great person, I'm just fine. Uh, The only thing wrong with me is things that have happened. But the gospel says the biggest problem in your world is you (laughs) because you continue to sin. Do we dwell upon our sin? You cannot dwell upon your sin and see a small Jesus. But you will have a small Jesus if you don't dwell upon your sin. You see, he has brought himself near so that we can know him and put our trust in him, in all of him. We cannot just accept the parts of Jesus that we like, the parts of Jesus that were fun, the parts of Jesus like his friendship or his answering of my prayers or his comfort to me in, in, in difficult times or, his, his, or treating him like a therapy blanket. We have to treat him as all of who he is. The people of Nazareth were happy to receive him as the carpenter. And that, and that was a true part of Jesus. But that was far from all of Jesus. And they refused to have Jesus as more than a carpenter. And so they did not end up having Jesus. Look at verse 5, a staggering verse. It says, He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed him. He could do no mighty work in Nazareth. Why? Was he suddenly weak? Does he live? Is he, is he powered up like, planet, like Captain America by our, by our belief in him? No. He could do no mighty work there because no one would come to him in faith. You see, the woman who was healed of her disease, her faith drove her to Jesus, to touching Jesus' garment. What we are being told here in Nazareth is nobody even the the people that needed healing would come to Jesus because they would not accept that he was a healer. They would not accept that he had that power. And so he stood there in their midst with power to heal and power to save, and no one came near. That is what that verse means. He did no mighty work there, not because he can't, but because they wouldn't let him. And so this verse, this passage ends with such a sad verse. Look at verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus stood in their midst, willing to be their Savior. And instead, he is marveling at the hardness of heart 
that they would not believe in him and be healed. It's like Jesus can see what could be. He could see all of the good he had in store for them. He could see all of the sick people that were going to be healed. He, was going, he, he could see all of the, the oppressed people that were going to be rescued from their oppression. And he watched them not even come close. And he marveled because of their unbelief. You see, if we refuse to receive Jesus as he is, we may not have Jesus at all. Jesus cannot just be merely friend or comforter or forgiver or gift giver. He must be Lord. That is, that is who he is. Friends, do you marvel at him? Do you follow him as Lord? So Jesus' lowliness reveals God to us. Jesus' lowliness reveals our heart toward him. And third, Jesus' lowliness reveals his heart toward us. Now, as I was working through this passage, I just kept getting stuck on verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. That is such a sad verse. Jesus comes home. He's not greeted with a homecoming, not greeted with uh, joy and excitement. He is greeted with dishonor. Dishonor not just by the townspeople, but dishonor even at his family's supper table. They dishonored him. They dishonored him. Jesus, they just were in his presence and they dishonored him. Where is his anger? Is honestly where, where I am. I mean, they are there belittling Jesus, the Lord, the one who does mighty works, who teaches the word of God, and they are there belittling him. They are there taking offense at him. They are there disrespecting him. If Jesus were like us completely, he would have anger. I mean, when you're belittled, when you're disrespected, does anything charge up your rage faster than that? And yet... Jesus shows no anger. You see, the most stunning thing about this passage, the most stunning thing about Jesus' lowliness is that Jesus allows himself to be mistreated and disrespected. Jesus allows himself. Why? Because he came in lowliness to bear our dishonor. Jesus came in lowliness to bear our dishonor. Why the incarnation? Let's ask that question again. Why the incarnation? The first time we, we talked about the incarnation, it was so that God could reveal himself to us. But we need to go to the deeper, more fundamental reason for the incarnation. The reason for the incarnation is this. 
Sin is a God-sized offense that we bear all guilt for. I want you to think about that. When we think about our sin, do we think about the act itself or do we think about who it's done against? You see, in the Bible, sin is done always against God's holy standard. It is a sin against his very good creation. Sin, whatever sin it is and whatever direct object it may have in this plane, it also always ultimately offends God. And you can't offend God just a little bit. You offend God, you've made a God-sized offense. And that is what sin is. Sin is not the cost of repairing the car. Sin is the cost of repairing a God-sized breach. And so sin is a God-sized offense that we bear as humans all the guilt for. So what does that mean? That means that if we have a God-sized offense as a sinner against God, we have a penalty that will take all eternity to be punished for. This is the logic of eternal punishment. A finite person that creates an infinite offense has to bear the punishment an infinite amount of time. And so this is our predicament. And so often we don't dwell upon our predicament. But sin is a God-sized offense that we bear guilt for. And so the only way that we can be saved is if one who is truly man stands in our place, who is able to bear the God-sized punishment our sin deserves. The person who has to pay our punishment has to represent us, has to be like us and one of us, but also has to be somebody who can bear the God-sized punishment for us. And so the, the only person that can stand in our place is one who is, is fully man like us, but fully God and able to take the full punishment of God. Only Jesus can do this. And that's what Jesus came to do. So as we look at this passage and as we look at where Jesus is going, which is the cross, we see in, in the story of Nazareth the beginning of his suffering for us on the cross. You see, for our salvation, Jesus was dishonored, not simply by Nazareth, but by all people, by being crucified, though he was sinless. Moreover, for our salvation, Jesus made himself powerless. He hung upon that tree. Even as he was mocked upon the cross, he did no mighty work to save himself. Dwell upon that. Jesus was mocked. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? Jesus did not save himself upon the cross. Jesus did not perform a mighty work for himself on the cross because he came to die on that cross, to be made powerless on that cross, that he might take our place on that cross. 
In Jesus' lowliness, then, we discover God's heart towards us. In Jesus, we see that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Rather than being angry as we dishonor and belittle and disrespect him, rather than being wrathful towards us as our acts deserve, God demonstrates his love for us by having Jesus suffer the ultimate dishonor of death upon a cross and endure the most agonizing powerlessness of his life enduring the wrath of God so that God could show his heart of love in saving us. You see, Jesus lowered himself into our world to suffer our judgment so that we would be raised with him to share his glory. It is because he made himself low, low to the point of being just like us, low to the point of suffering in our place that we have salvation. Listen, do you marvel at this? Do you marvel at this? Because Jesus is lowly, you meet him gathering with his people. You meet him by hearing his word each, uh, each week. You meet him by eating his meal with him. There is nothing about worship that should be overly familiar. We worship because he made himself lowly that we could worship him in his presence. Let us not neglect the gift that we have because Jesus became lowly. Let us not respond to a lowly Jesus with familiarity that breeds contempt. Let us meet a lowly Jesus with marvel and worship. Let us come to him, hear his invitation. From the Gospel of Matthew, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, his yoke is his lordship, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Beloved, where do you need to come to the Jesus who made himself lowly, the Jesus who is gentle and lowly? What burdens do you need to give to him? Where do you need to submit to his yoke of lordship? Where do you need to receive his rest? Amen.